0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Nobel laureate Michael Spence. Who is a professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU and a senior fellow uh, at the Hoover Institution? His new book is the next conversion: the future of economic growth in a multi-speed world. Professor Spence, welcome to Berkeley.
1: Thank you. Very, it's nice to be
0: here. Where were you born and raised?
1: I was born in New Jersey. Um, my mother did that on purpose, but my family's Canadian, and I uh, I grew up in, in Canada, Ottawa during the war, Winnipeg, and then Toronto.
0: And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world?
1: My father was uh, an intellectual, uh, and uh, although he kept sort of straying off into business, I think he would have been a better academic. Uh, but they pushed the life of the intellect, and that caused me to at least give uh, an academic career a shot, and it worked out pretty well for me.
0: And uh, was there a lot of discussion about economic issues at the dinner table, politics, world events? There was quite a bit. You know, there were
1: readers and knowledgeable. I don't. I think the thing I missed is we probably didn't talk as much as I would have liked about the things my father was seeing day to day. Uh, he was a relatively taciturn man. But but he he taught me mathematics at a very young age, and that turned out to be useful.
0: And where, then,
1: did you do your undergraduate work and graduate work? So after high school, I came to Princeton. Uh, And I did that because in Canada in those days, we had the English system, and it really didn't have the liberal arts feature. And I thought there are a lot of subjects I'd like to study. And I was a hockey player, and Princeton seemed interested in that. And uh, then I went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and did my Ph.D. in economics at Harvard.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what was your dissertation on? Um, it
1: was called Market Signaling. So I, I, uh, it was the work for which um, I got to receive the Nobel Prize in the company of your colleague, George Akerloff and Joe Stiglitz. We all were interested in markets with incomplete and asymmetric information my part was, well, how do markets respond to that, and how well do they, quote, fix the problem?
0: And, and what what was uh, creativity like in this process of, of this research uh, as an economist and then somebody who is kind of on the cutting edge of research?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think the main thing you have to do is to have a little bit of self-confidence and a little bit of risk-taking. I mean, if you go off and study something, it says George and Joe and I are viewed now as sort of together, but we weren't working together. Uh George was here. Uh he and Joe had been at MIT. Joe I can't remember where he was exactly at that time and and I was at Harvard and I didn't know either of them until later. So I think the three critical ingredients take some risk, and if it doesn't work out, you know, it's not the end of your life. You just used up a little time. Um, do something unconventional and to do that you really need the support of your advisors. I mean if your advisors say that's too risky, you know, do something more conventional, get a job and you can do that later, then that would probably stop anybody. It would have stopped me, but but they didn't say that, so I'm grateful to them.
0: What what is the skill base if if you were talking to a group of students going into economics, what 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 should they be learning that that is beyond the usual formula? Because in your new book that we're going to talk about, a lot of it is about actually going out and observing what's going on Mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think
1: good advisors and and sound strategy for students is get out of your discipline, get into the adjacent ones that are arguably sort of studying the, the same thing or a different thing but only slightly different so that where the boundaries occur, you get cognitive dissonance and you see there's a challenge, maybe these two lenses for seeing the world are both valuable. Uh, I think getting out and getting some experience is good. And and also, you know, uh, it's very important not to to accept the current agenda of the discipline as defined now. Um, if you want to do something original, then eventually you're going to alter the agenda, not replace it, not this is wrong, but add to it. And and so I think just getting clear about that so you don't have to look for your research topics somewhere in this edifice that's already been built.
0: What what led you to focus on information and market structure in that work. Was it just what was going on in the world or, or what?
1: Yeah, it was partly that. I've always, so the part of economics I love is to look at something in the world that I don't understand and then try to understand it better, frequently but developing a conceptual apparatus that's useful for it, and then sharing that with others. And I sort of, if something that seemed complicated seems simple after people hear about it, then you think you've probably succeeded a bit. Um, no, I was, it was sort of an accident. I mean, the Kennedy School was just starting at Harvard. And um, I almost quit because I was tired of being in libraries. And Dick Zeckhauser, one of my advisors, is a wonderful guy and a terrific mind, one, one of the best bridge players in the United States, <laughs> uh, he said, well, you could teach. And by the way, we're having a faculty seminar. It's kind of part of the way we're building the Kennedy School. And, and so And he said, you can be the rapporteur. Uh, and it was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, Ken Arrow and Francis Bathor and Dick Neustadt and Tom Schelling and, t- you know, talking about a different subject every week. And my job, my job was to make it seem like a really coherent, just brilliant discussion from beginning to end, kind of what, like what you do, Harry. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, and to this day, Ken Arrow thinks, uh, thinks that's my main skill, is being a rapporteur. And he jokes about it all the time with me. Uh, And and in that, there were a lot of interesting subjects. One of them was statistical discrimination. You know, it was the Vietnam War era. People were starting to think about things that really weren't so good in society. And somewhere in there, I picked up this notion that markets really have these additional structural characteristics. And one of them is that buyers don't know what they're buying exactly. Mm -hmm. I did then read George Akerlof's Lemons paper, at Tom Schelling's suggestion, and that was that was an eye opener for me, and then I went from there.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, this rapporteur function that you just mentioned is is it it's about listening and and sort of capturing the intellectual mm. uh, excitement of new ideas?
1: Yes, and delivering it back so it sounds coherent. I mean, you can just imagine the difference between a well done rapporteur's report and the transcript of the actual two hours some. It took I me mean, took me ages. I'd spend two three days writing up a ten page summary. to Try to capture the ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when you uh, you were later dean at uh, Stanford Business School, when you left that position, you uh, took on the job of chairing uh, a commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's uh, the commission on growth and development. Right. Uh, Talk about that because it's a it's a very uh, interesting story of, of a learning process really
1: for me it was so it it again there's so many things in life that are accidents Harry um, so I was minding my own business thinking the internet was going to have a pretty big effect on the world of economics I mean and the global economy and and I had figured out I think you know, that one of the bigger areas of impact would be the, the, the places that were remote from the centers of economic activity, the developing countries historically. And somewhere along the line, the, 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 uh, Roberto Zaga, who's now a very good friend and the head of the World Bank in India, phoned me up. I didn't know him. And he was at, in Washington, and then he said, would you give the main keynote lecture at the PREM conference in 2005 on growth? And I thought, well, I know, I'm kind of interested in that. But that's you know 10,000 people who know a lot more about this subject than I do in developing countries. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not a good idea. So I asked them, I said, why, why me? And he, they said, well, you've thought about this from an investment point of view. You're more microeconomically oriented. And growth has sort of slipped away in the agenda. And so I said, OK, I'll give it a try. I, I used the, the, the informational asymmetry work. I thought, this is a screening device. Mm-hmm. You know, if I do it and it goes badly, I'll have learned something and I ought to do something else. <laughs> and if it goes okay, then we can go. And that turned into the Growth Commission, and they knew a lot of people and I knew a few. And, and we basically assembled a group of people who were political and policy leaders, mostly in developing countries, the vast majority of them, people who had accomplished a lot, who would fought a lot of battles, won some, lost some. And we asked them, they said, would you like to participate in this, and is this an interesting... Exercise was sort of a screening device again, and they said yes, and so we formed a commission that was with some support from the World Bank, the Hewlett Foundation here in California, several governments, you know, the UK, um, the Dutch government, and so on, and and we set out basically, and I'll just make this brief to figure out what we'd learned from experience about growth in developing countries, and from academic research, put them all together and try to deliver something that's kind of readable and useful back to the policymakers and the political leaders in the developing world.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in the introduction to your book, let me show your book again, uh, The Next Convergence, Uh, you, you uh, you, you, you have two starting points. One is your sense and the Commission's growing sense of the impact of the Internet. Uh, talk a little about that, because this was you, you suspected and then I think I guess demonstrated that that this was a a, a powerful uh, motor force in what was happening in the world
1: it is i mean it 's part if you think of the world as integrating by policy and technology and learning and know how this is the technology part and it's, it really is powerful so I mean just take two dimensions we have if you're going to run a global supply chain, you know, in any business, you've got to control it. And in the old days, you had manufacturing moving to developing countries when the world opened up in the sense of the GATT. But, you know, there was lots of inefficiency. I mean, this took from deciding you wanted a product to getting it all done and whatnot It'd take 18 months, the product cycle, it's down to 3 to 6 now what the what the internet did is it allowed the efficient management of global supply chains you know so if like an iPod or an iPad has chips coming from that are designed for it coming from Japan, Taiwan, Korea it's got other stuff coming from other where it's assembled in China you know the design works being done in the United States except for some of the chip design You know, there's a lot of people scattered around the place, and you have to get them organized. And now, of course, we have the other thing, which is we have the direct delivery of services that are knowledge and information intensive on the Internet on a global basis. And those two things by themselves are just almost transforming with respect to the opportunities and integration in the global economy.
0: The, the other caveat uh, at, at the beginning of the book is that you, you point to the story of the dot-com boom and you say, okay, there are these possibilities here, but we have to watch uh, uh, how long this will take. And, 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 and you're saying, I, I think, that you have to understand history and organizations because it, it ain't necessarily going to happen as quickly as one thinks.
1: No, that's right. I, I think of that as something that we that we learn and then forget repeatedly. Yeah, I think I mentioned it in the book. But the late Svegrelakis, who was a great uh, uh, econometrician, one of the builders of econometrics and economics, did one of his most famous pa- papers on the diffusion of hybrid corn in the American West. And hybrid corn was you know an important innovation. It took twenty, thirty years to sort of get scattered around, mm-hmm. yeah. and and this is the same only it, it, it's not just information and adoption it's sort of learning how to use the technology that we that we uh, kind of underestimated at the in the dot com bubble so we just got overvaluations but but i think some people concluded from that uh not not experts but some people thought well that was a bubble you know pure and simple came and it went mm-hmm. but it had this this lingering effect which is you know this was real. it just we got the timing wrong
0: what, One of the uh, reasons for your book is to focus on this interface between the emerging economies and the advanced economies and and that's where the book ends up. But to get there, you you help us understand what exactly is going on. Uh, in the emerging economies, and what is the problem set that that they have to confront, and and this is all about uh, the new forms of economic growth. Help help us under understand uh, the the major problem that an emerging economy, a Brazil, a China, uh, uh, have to confront.
1: Well, you know that's a, that's a wonderful question. I'll I'll, I'll be brief. Um, First of all, in the in the postwar period, the emerging economies were given three things: the colonial empires, you know, were dismantled, and so the built-in asymmetries, you know, we do this and you supply this stuff, raw materials and stuff, it was taken away. So they were free, in some sense, to go their own way. Second, the, a bunch of very very wise people decided not to repeat the World War post World War I experience of crushing the vanquished. Does it produce disastrous results? And instead set off on of a course, they may, they almost certainly didn't understand the full dimensions. I wouldn't have. Uh, and, and they created a structure that turned out to be just uh, enormously beneficial to everybody, to the recovering countries in the war, after the war, but eventually to the emerging economies. So this open global economy, constructed by a combination of technology and farsighted policy gives a developing country two things. It gives them knowledge that we've accumulated over a couple of hundred years since the British Industrial Revolution, and if we and they can find a way to transfer it in, their potential output rises at a tremendous speed, at speeds you've never seen before, seven to ten percent. To take advantage of that, you have to do two things. You have to invest and save at high rates, which sounds simple, except for if I propose to you, who at the time might have a per capita, a family income of $500 a year, that maybe we shouldn't spend a third of that you know, and invest it in our, the future of our children and grandchildren together. Right? You might think twice before agreeing to that proposition because there's a big difference between $500 and $350 or $340. So the successful countries make an enormously impressive sacrifice in the present to create this growth engine that ultimately benefits them when it's fast enough, but mostly their children and grandchildren. So very high investment and savings rates. And then the other thing, final thing the global economy gives you, and you've got most of the moving parts except the governance, is... If you look at a developing economy in the early stages of growth, when it's still relatively poor, and look at the demand side of its economy, it's just not interesting. I mean, you're not going to make a whole lot of apparel and shoes for a market that's sort of poor and spending most of its money on shelter and food. So you need a market. And the global economy, of course, is a gift. I mean, you you build yourself up to a 1% market share grow at 100%, and now you've got a 2% market share if the global economy didn't grow. I mean, you cannot exhaust the global economy's capacity to consume relative to your size. And so the demand side doesn't slow you down. This is what Adam Smith meant, is the dynamic version of specialization is limited by the extent of the market. So the extent of the market in the global economy is just infinite. And so those two things, and you start this engine running, um, and you can grow in catch-up mode, catching up with us technologically and so on, for a long period of time. It takes, you start out poor, it'll take, even at high-speed growth rates, 50, 60 years to make this journey.
0: Now, now in, in uh, taking advantage of this opportunity, political leadership seems to be key in, in two senses. One realizing this possibility, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, being prepared to transition to the next stage. Right. Uh, talk a little about that. You used the example of China, mm. where the uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, actually brought American economists over to explain uh, to the leaders of the party what needed to be done.
1: Yeah, no, well, they'd already made the decision to change direction because they were failing. Yeah, China, I mean... China's a good case, right? So in the Communist Revolution, Mao and his colleagues took over. They did some good things. They educated people in a way that's very unusual in a poor country. Almost 90% of men and women were literate, and that was done before the reforms. Um, it, it, It was a country, this is crucial, it turns out, where the leadership had whatever you think of their performance, the intent to make the vast majority of people better off than they were, as opposed to countries where something's gone wrong. They're either autocratic or some pathology in democracy where a group is acting on its own behalf or on behalf of a subset. That second kind, class of cases, is that's just fatal to growth. There are no high growth cases in that. So they had two fairly important prerequisites, but they did not have any, enough freedom to operate economically. Um, and and they had a, a disastrous closed-in economic model. Everything I just said to you about the global economy was missing. And essentially one way to see about the, the Deng Xiaoping reforms in the 19 around 1978 was they decided to fill in the missing pieces. So they gave people enough economic freedom to operate, let the market system run with the incentives it created, and they picked the right open to the global economy model. And the way I encountered this other thing you referred to is that Deng Xiaoping asked McNamara, who was then head of the the World Bank, for the first time in the World Bank's history to come to China. And and he and I know some of the people who went with him, two or three. And he sat them down and he said, You know, we can probably you're a bank, but we don't mainly want money.
0: Hmm.
1: He said, we can probably muddle through and do this, but the truth is we don 't know much about running a market economy, and so we would like some instruction and we want to learn quickly. Can you help and that's when the you know american professors uh, you know late Jim Tobin I mean the leaders of our field went uh, to try to be helpful, and they gave lectures and the, the chinese uh did it geometrically? There'd be 20 people listening, and they took notes, and then those 20 would do 20 more, and and and, and 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 this has characterized Chinese growth all along. But there's a lot of people who don't like aspects of the way China is governed and deals with people, but it is, in my experience, the highest speed learning environment I've ever been in, and and that story. I mean, it's a true story about Deng Xiaoping. Is, he understood that this was really about learning, not mainly about bricks and mortar and bridges and factories.
0: Uh, you uh, make the point that the, the key uh, element in policy making in the emerging economy is understanding the importance of people versus the importance of jobs. And this becomes, mm-hmm. I mean, jobs are important, but I mean yeah. jobs come and go as the economy transitions. Yes. Uh, help, help us understand that because it's a very important point. So, so you have to not try, try to save jobs that become out of date as you develop a new middle class.
1: That's right. So, yeah, all over the place you, 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 you have to first learn this and then accept it. So that you actually have two demands. You 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 have structural change that's continuous, and and has to, and is almost the same thing as the growth, Harry. I mean, if you stall a stru- structural change, the growth will go away. And it you know and it occurs at all levels. I mean, people flowing into cities. You're building cities in China. They build Los Angeles every year, approximately. Um, it's new jobs. It's new companies. Some of them come. Some of them die off. It's new industries. It's New universities, it's the depopulating of the rural area because there was surplus labor there everywhere. You know, there's this high-speed change. And there's a lot of transition. So part of the the concept, the idea of inclusiveness, is everybody has a shot at this. They have to accept that not everybody will get into the modern economy at the same time because there will be some inequality, but you have to manage it. And you certainly have to protect people you know, when this economy that you can think of as a high-speed machine sort of sideswipes them. And that's done well or badly, but if, it, if you don't have anything. Now, the, what, the mistake that gets made is you protect them by protecting the company or the industry or the job. And if you do that, for, the Europeans did that in the post-war period because they have a more protective approach to social policy than, than we have traditionally had but they implemented it by protecting companies and industries and this company's the major employer in this town so we'll keep it as opposed to people and and the all the successful cases gravitate eventually to protecting people directly and letting the engine run and the other things come and go
0: and and so what they have to do is balance the job destruction with job creation Correct. as they move to producing new kinds of things uh, and and exporting different kinds of products
1: yeah and this but the probably the most the scariest if I can put it that way transition is the one that China's now entering which is called the middle income transition because that's the point you know where your incomes are up around $4,000. There's countries in the global economy that are still down around $1,000, 1500 or, or lower. And at, so at at four to 5000 and rising rapidly, you're not going to be the low labor cost place anymore in labor-intensive process-oriented manufacturing. So it doesn't happen overnight, but you've got to let it go. And that means you've got to let it go, the thing that you thought was the main sort of employment engine, for the rural sector as you entered the modern economy in the early days. So you've you've got you've got to let go of the thing you thought was the the growth model, and then let the economy deepen its human capital, deepen its sort of intellectual resources, and move to a different sort of stage of development, different part of the value added chain in a way. And because you know, I sometimes describe this as the, the, probably the biggest mistake that gets made is to think you've got the right formula and then do it too long
0: mm-hmm.
1: because nothing's permanent. So the tendency is you have both interest groups that want to protect this and you've got this generalized fear that it won't be replaced by anything and one has to overcome both of those. And that isn't always successful. I mean, the number of countries that have gone through the middle income transition at high speeds up till now is only five.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what do you see as the, the, the central characteristic of the different leaders you encountered that, that, that made this transition possible? Because what you're, you're talking about is an age-old problem, invested interests, in uh, interest. uh, political leaders tied to those vested interests, and, and not being able uh, to take the next step, and then things unravel.
1: Yeah. It's hard. I mean it's hard to be you know, very precise about that but I I think I think the people that impressed me most were were the ones that first understood that they have to have, they had to collect people and kind of build a sense of unity around a vision and sometimes with a you know a terrible starting point i mean take Nelson Mandela i mean he inherited a country that by all rights should have torn itself apart given its history and instead somehow managed to produce a group of people who are proud to be South Africans, you know, proud to be in charge, could see through his eyes in part the future that they had together. And um, uh, it's an amazing thing. And there's elements of that, I think, in all the successful cases. Then you have to pick the right model or you have to get enough good people around you. Uh, Humility doesn't hurt. I don't know all the answers. Uh, I'll get some people to help me and we'll put together a you know a sort of long-term plan you have to have long-time horizons and then if you're in a democratic setting you have to figure out a way to implement that you know in a system that in is inherently forces some short-term considerations namely getting elected and, and yeah no you put all that together i mean if if you can accomplish those things good people right strategy sense of unity around a vision inclusiveness, you've done an awful lot.
0: So, so the problem is really managing success, because you, you really have to do all of these things at a point where you're succeeding. Mm-hmm. It's just that you've got to change the agenda.
1: Yeah, that's right. But you do have to get it started. I mean, you get stuck in a low-level equilibrium, and people say, well, yeah, I know you say we should invest more, but you know, I don't think it'll work. Or they're not going to go along with it or something. So you just get stuck. I think these – some people like Jeff Sachs think the traps are economic, and he may be right. I think they're political economic. I think you can't you, – when you're in a very poor country in certain cases, you know, you just can't get the governance right or you can't get the, the motion started at the start. But then you've got to keep it up.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of your central points uh, – and I think you're trying to deal with this problem of why what you've just described is important – for the advanced economies that have already gone in the past through this process. And and what you're saying is that mm-hmm. these emerging economies have done so well up to this point that they really have an impact now on the global structure.
1: Yeah, I think this is the crossroads. I mean, we're within a few years, less than 10, of having the developing economies in the aggregate Be more than half the global economy, even without purchasing power parity adjustments and so on. You know, China is the second largest economy if you don't count Europe as one. It's about 10 years away from being pretty near our size in aggregate, right? Not per capita income, but in the aggregate. You know, Asia has 3.8 billion people, or 60% of the world's population, slightly less. And, you know, as It's the place where most of the growth is going to occur. It's got the two future economic giants, China and India. India also in high-growth mode now. And so so if you drop back vis-à-vis what you were talking about, China 25 years ago was, in the early stages of its high-speed growth period and reform, was growing at 10 percent, but it didn't make a bit of difference. In the global economy, it was minuscule. Now, but if you 'd run this engine for thirty one years, you get a pretty big economy and now, when they grow at ten percent, you know it 's a good chunk of the the world 's growth, especially with us struggling along in the post crisis period so yes i I wrote this now partly because I thought it was interesting you know to see how this worked in the in the post war period but also because it 's the time when their impact on the global economy and us is larger, and we now have to um share the reins of power with respect to global governance and and manage this whole thing we're in together
0: what what do you see as the uh responsibilities of the leaders of these emerging economies uh, once they recognize what you've just described, namely the impact of what they're doing. So, so they're managing this domestic transition. And then uh, I guess it would be helpful to understand what it is they have to see about their responsibilities uh, toward uh, uh, the global economy. One of the issues, mm-hmm. obviously, is when they accumulate large savings. this poses a problem uh, to to the system uh, yeah. uh, that 's one example if they have fixed exchange rates, uh, then they 're not adapting to uh, the the changes required as they face outward to the global economy yeah no
1: I mean I think you said it very very well. first, they have to recognize that th- the simple fact that they've gotten big enough to have systemic effects in the global economy, including big external ones. And the second thing is that they have to then learn how to, do, how to you know, trade off, when necessary, global interests in stability and fairness and other things against their growth and development agenda so they can't be as narrowly focused with blinkers on as they were before. Or they can... But it's not a good idea, and in the case of the big economies like China, it's not in their self-interest. And that the good news is they know this. So China is in almost unique position. It's the, it's the only country that's come anywhere near having global uh, systemic importance at at a per capita income of four thousand dollars. It's never happened before so there's a subset of people in China, including policymakers who think you know that's way too poor to be having global responsibilities <laughs> let's set that aside for another ten years we'll just focus on this and the wiser people in china and the and sympathetic external advisors and you know who they consult frequently come in and say, you know that's an understandable instinct, but it's not in your self interest you know with the exchange rate you can uh, if managed improperly, unbalance the system. If you do something uh, unexpected with your three trillion dollars of reserves, you could uh, put a, a major upset into the global financial system. And <clears throat> truth is, the Chinese know this. So I don't. It's not in their interest to do this. So it's it's learning how to discharge the responsibilities and make those trade-offs. That's that's on their agenda now
0: you We said at the beginning and in, in, in your book you 're struggling with this interface between the emerging economies and the uh, the advanced economies let let 's talk a little about that in the in the period the first stages of this uh, growth that you 're talking about we We had something called the Washington Consensus mm-hmm. that you discussed that basically were a set of rules uh, that may have been misinterpreted. But that were generally applied, and and you say in the book that one of the things you learned as part of the commission was how uh, the different setting led to different adjusting adjustments. So that what what was apparent in the success of these countries were adaptations, experiments that weren't in the the, the kind of Washington. Consensus formula. So talk a little about that because really we're in a period where the this adaptation has to be recognized, and and we we essentially have to move uh, to a new framework. But but the advanced economies aren't necessarily ready to accept that.
1: No, that's, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, so. The successful, it it revolves around the role of government. So John Williamson produced the Washington Consensus. He's a very smart man. And it was entirely sensible. If you read it, you think, yep, those are the key ingredients in in high growth. You know, 15 years later, John did that around 1990, ladies. 15 years later, with a lot of experience, we can add and subtract from them, but you certainly wouldn't say they were wrong. They were misapplied. They were stripped down to sort of, you know, privatize everything, liberalize, meaning open up immediately, let markets determine everything. And, and you know, lots of experience tells us that, that that doesn't work, that you have to be more cautious and gradual, that this is a process, not, you know, a big bang. And the successful countries find different paths, partly because they have different circumstances and histories, you know, Latin America has a legacy of the colonial period where the assets are honed by very small numbers of people. Huge amounts of income in inequality, even today, and while they're going in the right direction. I mean, the good news about Brazil is it's backed the high growth mode in an inclusive way, and the Gini coefficient, which is the standard measure of income inequality, <coughs> is coming down. <coughs> but it was above 0.6. I mean, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so... So what I learned, to kind of put it in a nutshell, is that the ideological approach to what the role of the government and what the role of markets is doesn't work. It's different for different countries, and you've got to find your own way down the middle. The mar- everybody knows the markets and capitalism are the driving force and decentralization, you know because the centrally planned things didn't work. But the government has an enormously important complementary role. As investor in human capital, as investor in infrastructure, as adapter to the speed of openness and so on, and the successful economies aren 't all in the same place but they're but they 're somewhere navigating with imperfect charts in that middle and so I, I think and it 's pragmatic and it 's experimental and it, and, and it 's not ideological
0: now this uh, need for change, which you're uh, um, yeah beautifully explains, and, and I should say to our audience in a very simple and clear way that so so one doesn't Thank have you. to be an economist to, un, to 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 actually learn here. Uh, this comes at a time after the 2008 uh, uh, failure of the global economy. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk a little about that because at, at one hand that. Collapse was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We saw the, the the emergence of the G twenty, but on the other hand, it it represents uh, a failure, I guess, of economic theory and of policy in the advanced economies. How does that uh, impact the response that the advanced economies have to make to the emerging economy? And and what should we be learning? From the 2008 collapse, to be able to do that. Hmm. Well,
1: that's a very big agenda, Harry. <laughs> I think it's, first of all, I think we, we we there were exceptions, but I would include myself and the people who were should be embarrassed and shocked at the incompleteness of the models we had of the financial sector and its dynamics and its potential to go this way and 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 get out way out of balance and eventually collapse. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve, again, I think it's additions rather than throwing stuff out. Now, in the emerging markets, they said, well, you know, we never thought we should have an approach to economic policy that was the same as the advanced countries until we got to be the advanced countries uh, over a 50-year period. And now they're saying, well, kind of we don't know what that is because we have to reconstruct it a bit. Meanwhile, they did very well. I mean, they had learned from the 98-798 crisis. They had reserves. They had better leverage situations than we did in the public sector, government and private sector side. They didn't have, you know, the toxic assets on the balance sheets. And so they took a big shock when the capital started flowing out and when trade fell off a cliff. Fortunately, trade came back. And they handled the credit problem, as we did, really quite well. I mean, that was done well all over the world. Um, and they bounced back. China, India, and Brazil, in that order, are back to pre, pre, uh, pre-crisis growth rates. And they're doing it even as we limp along in Europe in America, and America and Japan, which means they have achieved a greater degree of – they're not independent from us. You know, if we take a nosedive, that will hurt, but a greater degree of independence and resilience. And they're pleased. They're happy. And I think they, you know, think the the pragmatic sort of slightly skeptical path um, and balancing, you know, respect for market forces and prices and price signals with something a little more adapted to their, their the state uh, the state of their economy, what stage of development they're at. So this, this could have caused them to sort of throw over the market capitalist model on the ground it failed here initially in some form. And they didn't do that. They said, look, this, this is not a failure of markets and capitalism. This is a failure of the financial system that had dramatic effects. The, the last thing I'll say about this you know, is our interests and theirs are very much the same. They want us to restore growth and employment and be a cooperative player with respect to managing the global economy and we and and they have an interest in getting their uh, current account trade surplus down because they need the consumption to drive the growth now that we've you know staged a partial exit
0: the United States uh, is confronting uh, uh, economic dilemmas in its policy uh, that Require us to make a kind of transition to essentially move away where we were in in terms of the development of our economy. Uh, talk a little about that. I know you you mentioned earlier when we were talking before the interview that that you've just written a piece what 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 happened to employment in the United States over the last couple of decades uh, as we now confront this very high employment unemployment, which we weren 't able to get rid of
1: right <coughs> well we went we went back uh, Hale, 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 and i she 's a talented young economist who 's coming here to Berkeley next year. Uh, we looked at employment and value added and value added per person, which is closely related to income in the American economy by sector, you know fairly finely divided. And and what we found is that we the American economy managed to create I think it was 27 million jobs man that's a lot of jobs and but most of the employment creation net that's in in every sector you create and destroy jobs so these are all net figures increments virtually all of it was in the non-tradable sector where it's probably easiest to but it's things that have to be goods and services that have to be produced where they're consumed plus or minus a bit. So, the big sectors in, are on the non tradable side are government health care construction. You have to build a building where the building's going to be built, you know retail, big employer restaurants, hotels, and so on there's other employers, but those are the big ones, and probably together they accounted for sixty percent of that growth. The interesting thing is the tradable sector you know grew quite nicely if you look at value added or just its top line, but it but it but it actually didn't generate any employment. And the, a subset of it, which we normally think of as manufacturing, actually declined in employment quite a bit, compensating for increases elsewhere in finance and computer design and whatnot. And so the net effect was no job growth. I mean, in some ways, it's a miracle, Harry, that we you know, created 27 million jobs without doing it on the tradable side of the economy. We did it with uh, big growth in government and health care and, some excess consumption mm-hmm. um, now we 've had the the shock, and I think we probably aren't on that trajectory and what would have shown up before is going to show up as is as it as a, an employment problem but also an income distribution problem because mm-hmm. what 's happening is the global economy and other forces are affecting different parts of our income distribution differently and the adverse effects in terms of income growth and and employment options you know just the range of things you can choose from or choose to try to achieve is the the adverse effects seem to be in the middle income range mm-hmm. and i think it is it's an important challenge for us in america to to go to work and think together about you know making um, the next 10 20 years of the evolution of our economy and the global economy a more inclusive one for for Americans
0: and, and the important point here is as you point out in the book and, and pieces that I've seen that you've written is that we have to turn to the tradable sector to increase economic growth here and get over this uh, this uh, these high numbers in unemployment yep so what what is what is involved in doing that is it uh, are policymakers making choice choices that that build up the infrastructure, the talent, whatever to 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 make that sector bigger? And how do you go about doing that?
1: You you, you may not be. Uh, let me just preface this by: I think there's a lot of things we can do, but I'm not sure you can get rid of all the distributional impacts of globalization. I mean, I literally don't know. So this isn't meant to be, if you do all these things, you know, you'll solve the problem. But, but let me say what I think. And then, then I think we ought to have an argument, you know, if we can bring it up and have a lot of inputs. But first of all, as a country, we underinvest, both on the public sector side and now on the private sector side, because we're aggregate demand short because of the consumption fall and because the slack hasn't been taken up by additional demand. From the global economy, I think it's important, Harry, for your, your your audience to understand the part of the tradable sector that we're in is very competitive. You know, finance, managing multinational enterprises, designing things, you know, uh, consulting of a whole variety of kinds. I mean, these are employ very talented people, and and so we shouldn't. This is a strength. And it generates some domestic employment, so it, it, this isn't a, you know, woe is me kind of picture. It's a mixed picture, but as a country, we're underinvesting, uh, and we're not saving enough to fin- finance our investment. That's why we have a, a, a current account deficit, a persistent and too high one. And then, if I had to be more precise, I'd say there's parts of high, of the educational system that aren't very effective, and aren't producing results in terms of cognitive skills. So. One project would be to work even harder, and I know a lot of people are involved in this, in getting the whole system up to the standards that we normally apply in higher education, in terms of performance and innovativeness and dynamics. We've got to invest more in infrastructure. We ought to go look at the investment we make in the knowledge and technology base of the economy and and see if we can augment it a bit or direct it into areas that are going to focus on the employment issue as opposed to what's interesting today or whatever. We for sure, whatever you think of our environmental policies, we should have an energy policy that makes sense in a world in which the emerging economies are going to drive increasing demand and probably prices up. Not forever, because there's substitutes for some of this stuff, but that's the world we're going to live in. We were before the crisis we're returning to it now um, you know uh accommodative monetary policy may accelerate this increase, but it's not the main event in the long run and the tax system you know we we probably ought to have a value added tax so that's controversy. We surely should simplify it we should you know try to promote uh incentives for productive investment as opposed to just housing, which is privileged, and get rid of incentives to do the investing offshore, other than on the merits, because that's where a lot of the growth is. So there's just a whole lot of things that if we can get our attention focused on them will help us deal with these longer term structural problems. And And my main concern right now is we have a big enough fiscal problem that needs attention. And I wouldn't argue anything I just said should replace the focus on that. But I think that may be sufficiently difficult that we will just not get around to attending to some of these other things for a while.
0: At one point in the book, you raise the question: Well, as these emerging economies move to the high value end, mm-hmm. then what's left for us? And you you use the uh, a, a friend uh, had said something about uh, the contact, the jobs that that uh, that are like a. a I'm forgetting exactly. No, where. Jim Gibbons called yeah, it, call yeah. it a body contact. Yeah, court. yeah, body contact. Talk, yeah. talk a little about that because it yeah. is, there, there are some things which you just talked about that that we do well and we need to continue doing, and they're not going to go elsewhere. No, that's absolutely
1: right. So uh, the, I think the easiest way to think of it is skip the transitions, which are difficult, and jump to the end. Mm-hmm. So, so the question I get asked all the time is. Well, you know, if they're rising, does that mean we're falling? And, I, and my answer is clearly not, right? You know, we can be off our game or on our game, but in a global economy that in the next 20 years is going to be three times as big, and 30 years could be four, four and a half times as big, and just measured by GDP, you know, if we're on top of our game, then sure, we'll have lots of competition in the tradable sector, but there's no reason to think we'll lose. Well, I sometimes go back historically. After World War II, the United States was really the only major economy intact. And we did great because we didn't have much competition. Then the Europeans, you know, rebuilt and the Japanese built, you know, back up and and actually went past where they were. And we continued to do quite well. You know, and now we're going to have China and Brazil and India and a bunch of other countries and they're going to build themselves up. And as long as we don't slip up, on maintaining our focus on being innovative and investing in people, all of us, and creating an environment that's conducive to being open in the global economy and as competitive as we can be. There's no reason why we should lose. I think that, so what's that got to do with what I said before? What I said before, I think, is the immediate agenda for being on our game, get the investment levels up and focus them on the things that are important, and we'll do okay.
0: We're we're here at a time when the IMF is looking for a new director, and what mm. we're seeing is that the Europeans don't want to give up uh, the power they have in that organization. What what's the key here? You you've been a, a, uh, an administrator. You were a dean right. at uh, Harvard. You were a dean at uh, the Stanford uh, Business School. What is it about power? and being willing to give it up as you know relationships change because that's really the key when you talk about international uh, governance do you have some in, in special insights with this regard uh, uh putting on this other hat that you've had as a as an administrator dealing with faculty <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I mean I don't think it's any great instinct in insight, Harry, but it's a fairly deeply embedded um human characteristic, you know, to want to protect uh the things that you have that give you some kind of advantage. Right. So in a in a university setting, you know, faculty are very, very, you know, alert to anything that might be an incursion on their authority with, with you know in the area of academic policy, appointments and stuff and or the research agenda or anything and for for good reasons, but it's a very highly developed antenna. I think we in America are in a transition where we have to learn to think of ourselves as not dominant, not mainly focused on just what happens here. You know 30 years ago, if you wanted to know what the major forces operating on our economy were, they were mostly internal. And I think we're in that transition where that can't be true. That means we have to become more knowledgeable. We have to learn to think of these things as our both competitors and partners in the future. It's going to take a generation or two because people my age, you know, have lived in the dominant economy in the world for our entire working life. So I think it's hard. And in the case of Europe, um, they have a special problem, uh, which is they, they haven't fully formed the European Union, right? This is not like a country. It's politically decentralized. It's fiscally decentralized. It's a very impressive achievement thus far. And hopefully they will eventually succeed in the dimensions they hope for. But it makes them hypersensitive to, to to dimensions in which they lose power. This is one, and they may be right that for one more round, a European of great stature like Christine Lagarde would be the right appointment. I, I don't I don't want to weigh in on that. I think on the next round, it has to be um, somebody from outside Europe. But they, but they. You know they, they have way too, way too much voting power in the World Bank and the IMF, and you know Belgium doesn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. So that's kind
0: of where we are. One one final question: How would you advise students to prepare for the future, uh, which which you have which is already happening, and there'll be more of it coming along uh, uh, in this. What you call the multi-speed mm. uh, world economy? Well, I,
1: I think what you know, probably the advice is the one we've always given our, our our younger people anyway, which is, you know, maximize you know the value of your education, your, with a focus on sort of curiosity and and learning. And I guess the only addition is an expand those frontiers, you know, not just to different types of people, but to people from all over the world. Um, so I think that probably means language skills and a fair amount of travel. You know, I, we were talking before, and you can learn a lot about the world out there by reading, but eventually, you know, you probably just have to go look.
0: Well, on that note, I want to uh, thank you for being here. Let me show your book again because I think it's, uh, as I said, it, it's, going to, it's I think, going to be an important tool in helping uh, the public uh, understand what's going on in the world economy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harry. I very, enjoyed being with you. Yeah, it was, it was a great pleasure to have you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.